Welcome to Docket by the Bay. I'm Wes Adams, Anne Arundel County State's Attorney. With me today in Episode 3, State versus Michael Wilson, otherwise known as the Mother's Day Murder, is Deputy State's Attorney Claude DeVasti-Jones and Assistant State's Attorney and the powerhouse trial lawyer head of my domestic violence unit, Mary Setzer. How are you guys today? Good, thanks. Very well, thank you. All right, so domestic violence is really difficult type of crime to prosecute and i don't know if if the listeners really understand why it is these cases are so difficult so state of maryland versus michael wilson is a really um brutal domestic violence murder and before we get into really what the facts of that case are you know can you guys give me a little bit of of your take on why these cases are so difficult and what sets them apart in prosecution I think the first thing to understand is domestic violence is not just an anger issue. It's actually not at all an anger issue. And I think that's the biggest common misconception, and it makes it different than other crimes. Um, And that's because domestic violence involves power and control. And by its very nature, power and control of someone that the abuser is in an intimate relationship with. And so they have that ability to um, manipulate them in every aspect of their life as they're most commonly living together or at least seeing each other very often. And so it's not just an inability to control an impulse. It's actually um, so much more than that in terms of controlling um, who they hang out with, their friends and family, isolating them from other people, controlling finances, controlling children, and all of those other things that kind of get a victim to a place where they are much vulnerable to what culminates in physical abuse. But that is by no means all it is. So Mary, that was a pretty long answer. Just so everybody knows, how long have you been an assistant state's attorney? For about five years. I guess you specialize now in domestic violence cases. How long have you been doing DV cases? Um, about two and a half years. And, you know, as the as the head of that unit here in the state's attorney's office, can you tell the listeners how many cases like that we see? Just in circuit court, which is our felony domestic violence cases, um, we have probably handled several hundred in the last few years. At any given time, we probably have, um, between me and another prosecutor, about maybe 70 to 100 active felony cases. Um, and every single one of them, but maybe I could count on one hand the amount that don't involve the power and control, and maybe there's something else. But I would say 99.9% of those 100 active cases that we have just in circuit court alone involve everything that I had just mentioned. Wow. And Claude, just so the listeners know a little bit about you know your background and history coming into this, how long have you been an assistant state's attorney? Um, for 18 years. Wow. And and can you give the listeners a little idea about your background as, a, as an assistant? Um, I've handled some of the domestic violence cases both in the district court when I was in Howard County and also in the circuit court where I did the more violent cases. Um, I did a number of attempted murder cases that were all domestically related um, involving the same things that Mary was talking about with control and manipulation of the victims. I handled a number of different cases, but now as a deputy state's attorney, I'm able to do other things to help run the office, but I do have an opportunity to be able to work with such great assistance so that I can still see the cases and still be part of the of the criminal justice system. And so Mary was talking about how you know the power and the, and the control sort of infiltrate all parts of the victims' lives. It specifically when you're trying to put a case together, 
how does that power and control issue manifest itself? If you could each give me like a good example of what you see with, with either a witness or a victim that's involved in these cases. For this particular case that we had um, with the Michael Wilson case, um, we were able to see the control when we were looking up the history between the victim and the defendant. And we were able to find actual incidents of control. And we were able to speak with people who witnessed that controlling factor on the victim, including her daughter, who unfortunately had to witness this attack and the murder of her mother on Mother's Day. And what I'll say, obviously, the case we're talking about today was a murder, um, but in a case where there's a surviving victim, you can actually, unfortunately, see it unfold as the case is pending. Most of the time, they're continuing communication, and even if they are not directly uh, continuing communication, because they're usually, if not always, ordered not to by the court, he is controlling and manipulating her in other ways, so through other people getting messages to her or just placing fear in her. And so we often deal with victims who do not want us to proceed with prosecution because of that. And it could be simply because of the manipulation where she truly believes that this is something different now because of the way he's been talking to her about what happened. But it also could be out of fear direct or indirect threats that I have to continue in this. I do not know how to get out of this relationship. And if the court is involved, um, they think it will only get worse, which is part of our jobs to explain how it will not. And um, all of the creative ways that we do take all of those other things into account, what's going on. And, and you know, obviously, since like you guys, I'm, I'm a prosecutor, there's a, a phrase that we talk about called a cycle of violence. And, and you're really describing the meat of what the cycle of violence is all about. And so if you, could you give me, could you give the listeners a little bit more insight into how we all see that cycle of violence every day. Well, sure. Like, so in the beginning, when we do get a call or the police does get a call for an actual physical incident of domestic violence, at that point, it's not necessarily because the victim in that case wants to stop um, her relationship with their abuser. It is because they want to stop the attack in which they believe that they are going to be seriously harmed. So that also is why we don't always get every incident of domestic violence reported to us. Um, once that happens and the police have done their their part, which is to stop the attack in which the, the victim believes that they were going to be seriously injured, then the cycle then starts where the attacker or the abuser now starts to t try to apologize and try to start to bring the victim back around and minimize the situation, at which point the victim now being away from the situation feels better about the relationship and will come back again with the abuser um, because it has never been their intent in most cases, at least in that cycle of violence, to come back around to want to say that I want to prosecute the abuser. I just wanted the incident for that moment to stop. And once it has been stopped, that's when everything goes back to normal. And they go through what we call like the honeymoon phase, where there is everything is fine. There's a, a very cordial relationship again. And then we will start again to build the tension that will bring us back to starting with the abuse again. In, in prosecuting these cases, when the victims, you know, when, when they get into this honeymoon phase and they don't want to prosecute, why is it that we have to step in then? Interestingly enough, the cases where they don't want the prosecution to continue and they are minimizing or denying what occurred tend to be the more dangerous relationships. And that is because of what we've sort of mentioned before, the manipulation going on. 
And so that means that they are potentially at even greater risk because they are so also emotionally abused that they aren't seeing things clearly anymore. And so it's really important that um, knowing that we may never get another incident reported between the two of them, we do our best to get something out of every domestic violence case. And when I say that, you're probably aware it doesn't always mean, and we do our best to explain this to them, it doesn't always mean um, some astronomical amount of jail but it could be some abuser intervention treatment by the abuser because we start with the assumption that they will continue in that relationship. And if she doesn't want it prosecuted, then, then, you know, those other things are going on. And we just, while we have a a pending case, we want to make sure that she continues to be safe. She or he, um, depending on who the victim is, if they continue to be in that relationship. And, And unfortunately, sometimes when, even with all of our best efforts, when they don't work, we end up with a case like Michael Wilson. So, Mary, can you tell me a little bit about the backdrop of the facts of this case and how we ended up getting to this this murder that occurred leading into Mother's Day? So the facts of this case in terms of the relationship actually started several years ago. Miss Barkley, the victim in this case, um, started in a relationship with Michael Wilson um, in about 2008 or 9 and they actually had a domestic violence case that was reported actually two of them one in Baltimore City and one in Anne Arundel County and he did serve a sentence and was ordered to have no contact with Miss Barkley he uh, finished serving that sentence in January of 2016 do we know if she knew about his violent past before she got involved with him we don't know whether she knew about that and the reason for that for us not knowing is that um, when Claude and I talked with a lot of um, the surviving victims, the family members of Miss Barkley, they didn't know much about her relationship with Mr. Wilson. So that secrecy. Yes. And and is that kind of a hallmark of some of these type of relationships? That in isolation, which we we believe, which is part of it. Yes. So he had two domestic violence incidents with Miss Barkley. And, and, you know, Mary, this goes back to what you were talking about just a few minutes ago. Despite that, she was still back around and, and in his presence. She was, and um, while he was incarcerated, they continued to communicate. And in fact, um, it was almost a prolonged period of honeymoon phase because all he was able to do during that time was apologize and try to make good and try to manipulate. And that is what um, we had found was going on during that several year period that he was incarcerated. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about you know, the power and control and, and Mary, you at one point mentioned, you know, the financial independence and the physical independence, but, you know, Miss Barkley wasn't really financially dependent on Mr. Wilson. Can you describe their relationship? That's correct. Miss um, Barkley actually had a full-time job that she had had for a long time. She had her own vehicle. She had her own apartment. And so I, I think it's really actually important to understand that in these cases, it is not always about someone being insecure or dependent financially upon someone else. She was a very outgoing, confident, by all accounts, independent woman. But what we found in this case is that while in every other aspect of Miss Barkley's life, she was that other person, that independent, confident, happy person. In her relationship, she was controlled and she was isolated and it was an entirely separate situation. So she was not with Mr. Wilson because she needed him for those financial reasons or for support. She was being manipulated by him. 
and really was unable to to get out of that. And so it, it is really important to understand that it, domestic violence touches all kinds of people, all kinds of victims, people who have, you know, exceptional education, people who have exceptional security clearance jobs, because it is really so different than just the black and white. This person needs this um, this abuser or needs this person to support them. So on the Saturday night before Mother's Day, do we have any idea what really kicked this off and how we got how we got to the tragic death of Miss Barkley? Um, basically, it, it, it was very similar to the incidents that were, had occurred earlier where he was prosecuted both in Baltimore City and here in Anne Arundel. Um, Mr. Wilson was a, terribly obsessed with Miss Barkley and the fact that he believed that she was always um, having an affair or cheating on him. He was very jealous. We could see through text messages between the two of them. He was constantly accusing her of um, having an affair, was spying on her, just very obsessive for the weeks leading up into the day that we get to the murder. And even to the point that during that day, the surviving victim and witness in this saw that the tension had come to such a point that she herself wanted to leave and was trying to find family members to help her leave the house because she no longer wanted to be with the defendant and her mother at the time because she just thought the tension was too much. So it all stemmed from what has always been, it looks like, the hallmark of the problems in their in their relationship, his obsession that she was having an affair. Can you give me a little idea of how this all ended up? How, how did this how did this play out? Sure. They were all in Miss um, Barkley's apartment where she had allowed um, the defendant to live sort of unwillingly when he came home from prison. And uh, he, again as usual, was confronting her. He had recording devices that he had left under her bed, was claiming that he heard something in them. And so what we do know, because we have a surviving victim, is that there was a confrontation in the bedroom between Miss Barkley and the defendant. Her daughter was able to tell us that she sort of gleaned that that was going on, uh, at which point her mother came out of the bedroom and said, we need to get out of here, get dressed, we're going to the store. Now, this is about 1130 at night in the evening. They're in their pajamas. And so they, she tried to get out of the apartment, said, we're going to the store, repeatedly telling the defendant she did not want him to go with them. Um, and unfortunately, not surprising, though, he followed them out of the apartment and um, had hidden her car because she allowed him to use her vehicle. He did not have a vehicle. So when he drove home that night, as this has been building for weeks, he parked her car in a, a dark area, isolated area, not in the parking lot outside of the building. And so uh, Miss Barkley and her daughter are walking to look for their car. The defendant is following, which ultimately culminates um, as they get, finally find the vehicle and get to the vehicle and the defendant um, stabbing Miss Barkley multiple times. Well, and in the course of that, Miss Barkley calls 911. She does. And, and, you know, in doing that, you know, obviously she's trying to look out for herself, like you're talking about earlier, Claude, like we're at the tipping point. We're in a dangerous situation. And she calls for 911. And next thing you know, Wilson's attacking her. I know it's a little graphic. I know you guys are being real sensitive about it, but can you give us a little idea about how that attack went down? 
Yeah, I mean, the 911 is pretty chilling because obviously she makes the call as they're leaving the apartment. She already knows that there is possibility of danger um, as they're leaving. So he. And what's she saying on the call? She calls 911. She hangs up. 911 obviously calls back. Um, she They ask if she can talk. She tells them no. They ask her to give somewhat like yes or no answers. 911 operators obviously being trained to know how to help a person in need. So they are trying to elicit information from her, like trying to get a location of where she is, whether or not there are any weapons about. And at this point, Miss Barkley did not know that there was going to be a weapon involved. There's an accusation at some point by, you can hear by the defendant saying, who you're on the phone with? She said, none of your business. But you can hear that they, he is still close to her as they're walking. She continues to ask whether or not the police are on the way. 911 operator does tell her they are, they're on their way. And they were. Sirens are heard, which are not related to this incident. And at which point you hear the defendant turn around and yell, you call the cops on me because you were cheating. And then you can just hear the screams from Miss um, Barkley's daughter as Mr. Wilson is chasing her and stabbing her multiple times until the point that she is able to get him off of her. And you hear her drive off, at which time they're driving off to the hospital and Miss Barkley is basically dying. Wow. Wow. And, you know, the, the, the statement, you called the cops because you're cheating. I mean, that's unbelievably chilling. How, how you put, you call the cops because you're cheating on me. I mean, it gives you a lot of insight into, you know, his mindset and, and, you know, that power and control idea. And it's just, it's just wild. After she dies, obviously the police conduct an investigation Tell me a little bit about, you know, preparing for a trial like this and, you know, preparing this case in particular. What, what are the things that you're doing? Well, this case is a unique one um, in that we did have that surviving victim, which was her daughter. And so Claude and I also had to deal with not just um, gathering evidence and interviewing witnesses and strategizing, but being sensitive to the fact that um, her daughter was left behind who witnessed this. And so part of what we did throughout the process is um, we had to make decisions about when it was appropriate to start discussing the facts with the daughter sure, and to what degree she was comfortable with it, but while also not sacrificing our preparation of the case. And so that was one thing that was really prominent in our decision making in this case. That had to be really delicate because, you know, on one side you've got a, a child that's watched their mother get killed in brutal fashion and yet at the same time that's the most essential piece of a prosecution that you're trying to put together exactly i think claude and i maybe had four meetings with with the surviving victim the daughter before we ever really said you know what we've we've got to talk about this and that is part of the decision making that prosecutors particularly in domestic violence cases have to make because of that the human aspect to it and in the course of this investigation, did the defendant ever talk to the police or give any statement? He did. He gave a fairly lengthy statement in which he did a lot of blaming of the victim and blamed her for causing the reaction that ends up resulting in her death. At one point um, in the in the interview, the defendants told they tell Michael Wilson that Miss Barkley has died. What does he say when that happens? He says, man, she didn't have to do this. And as you can imagine, those words say a lot. And we thought they were extremely powerful. 
She, he said, man, she didn't have she, to do this. She didn't have to do this. That's crazy. He, he, he did this. And yet when he was told she died, he says she didn't have to do this. Correct. That concept, is this what domestic violence is all about? It is. It's, it's really interesting because Michael Wilson is really the typical narcissistic kind of personality, domestic abuser that we see. Um, he's placing blame, making excuses, and always putting his victim on the defensive, which is what Claude was talking a lot about with those text messages that we were able to review leading up to this. Um, and his statement after he's being told that she ultimately died as a result of him stabbing her multiple times really does corroborate that. You said when you were getting ready to prepare this trial or if it went to trial, did, didn't go to trial? Why not? So, so on the morning that we were getting ready to pick the jury, ready for the trial, Mr. Wilson came in and started um, talking about the possibility of wanting to take a plea. And by the afternoon, um, after um, speaking with counsel and um, speaking with the family, Mr. Wilson elected to plead guilty to the first degree murder and the second degree assault on the, on the daughter. So. First degree murder, is that, was that the highest charge that was charged? That is correct. And at the time he pled guilty, Mr. Wilson was facing a life without parole sentence, though. That is correct. And yet he still pled guilty. That is correct. Wow. That's a pretty good deal for you guys. Yes. So what happened? Did, uh, did you guys go right to sentencing? No, we um, actually had to take a break So because we, we literally were not ready for that and we needed time for the family. And obviously, there need to be some investigation work that we wanted to presentation of evidence to the court so that the court could understand based on his past history, not only um, against Miss Barkley, but just in general, the history of Mr. Wilson, which is quite atrocious, um, needed to be presented and why it would be appropriate that Mr. Wilson should get a life without parole sentence. All right, so can you tell me a little bit about what happened in the sentencing hearing? Because that that's the next step, right? He pleads guilty, they do a little investigation, and we come before a judge maybe about six or eight weeks later. Give the, give the listeners a little idea. What is a sentencing hearing, especially one like that, where it's really just everybody's free to argue what they want to argue about either you know an aggravation of this murder or, or in mitigation? How does something like that play out in a courtroom? So the first part of it, of course, is we do talk about um, someone's criminal record and convictions and contacts with the criminal justice system. But I think in this case, what was equally, if not more important for us to convey when we had the ability to argue for the highest penalty that we have in Maryland, which is life without parole, um, we really needed to paint the picture of this man, and regardless of convictions, and paint the picture of this man as a dangerous abuser and how he has impacted the lives of his victims over over the years including the surviving victims so that was a significant portion of our sentencing hearings in this case and going into it this judge had never given a life without parole sentence ever you know in his 15 years or so on the bench so how did we what what kind of sentence did mr wilson get and how did we get there Mr. Wilson did get life without the possibility of parole, and the judge made clear that he did not receive that sentence because the judge felt that he mandatorily had to give it right. based on the statutes in our state. He received that sentence because the judge thought he deserved it based on his conduct previously and in this case. 
Um, so I think for Claude and I, that was a personal accomplishment for us because that really was part of the advocacy that we had to do. We had to argue of why this man is a danger and why he he did deserve that sentence. Um, and the judge, again, made clear that, that he did agree and he felt he deserved it. How long did this hearing take? So it was done in two parts. And so probably total, um, the state's case was probably almost four hours. Four hours to paint a picture for sentencing. Yes. It was worth it. Absolutely. Did, yeah. did the victim, did anybody from the victim's family get to speak? Yes. We had collected several victim impact statements leading up to the sentencing. I mean, I think over a dozen statements, but two individuals read their statements at sentencing, one of those being um, the surviving daughter of Miss Barkley. And so that was, of course, very powerful and and much more so even than just it having been written on paper. I mean, life without parole, knockout sentence, it's hard, as you said, Mary, the, the highest sentence you can get. I mean, I guess this is why you guys go back in, in these lower cases, in these, you know, these initial assaults, these you know, kind of strangulations, the, the physical beatings and, and advocate for significant sentences. Right. So that we don't have a scenario like this where we do have to ask for life without parole because the person's now dead. So a little bit about uh, a day in the life of a domestic violence prosecution and and a little bit of, of insight into the everyday grind and, and battle that a domestic violence prosecutor, really an expert prosecutor, puts together. Um, so I appreciate you two guys coming in and, and sharing your experience with this case to our listeners. Tune in next time for episode number four. Uh, look forward to, to sharing the mic with all you guys again, and, and thanks for listening.